Mojave Beach Productions. Saratoga Playhouse and Mojave Beach Productions present dramas of conflict and passion, stories taken from ordinary life and those not so ordinary. On this pitch black night, deep inside a patch of North Carolina woods, embers are dying from an earlier campfire. There's a small tent close by, the kind created for honeymooners rather than for serious hunters. A lantern glows from inside, silhouetting a man and a woman engaging in a bit of loving horseplay as they prepare for bed. The woods are cricket and frog hushed, except for the couple's whispers and occasional bursts of laughter. <laughs> A pair of shoes crunch slowly over dead leaves. Earth sandals. The kind favored by environmentalists and hippies who don't yet know the 60s are over. The shoes have feet in them. They must because they take one step forward and stop. Ankle deep in foliage, like a doe, listening. The campfire hisses. Sparks spiral upward and fall back on themselves. The shoes advance cautiously then stop again. The silhouettes on the tent wall whack each other playfully with fat pillows. The sound of their laughter filters through the stillness as the silhouettes collapse into one another, becoming a single shadow. The campfire, feeding on itself, flares briefly, and the shoes step over it and move toward the tent as the silhouette splits into two forms again. One of the shadows reaches for the lantern, the light goes out. Suddenly, the sound of footsteps running through leaves followed by a commotion of human voices. Muffled, indistinct, alarmed. There's a struggle. Bodies move quickly, slam into one another and fall away. Heavy sounds of flesh thumping into flesh. No screams, no well-defined words. Just a gurgle of disbelief. The horror of surprise. And it's over. Campfire refuses to die. Two licks of flame dance among the ashes. Then the footsteps walk again, coming toward the fire, determined, unhurried steps. They stop at the campfire. The man in the earth shoes kicks dirt and debris over the stubborn flames until they're reduced to small red dots. <laughs> It has to be one of the most gruesome faces imaginable. Two black holes for eyes, flaring nostrils, jagged slit of a mouth, a really hideous mask worn by a child participating in his grade school production of My Martian and Me. In fact, at least a dozen of the repulsive buggers are attempting to entice an eight-year-old Sammy Rowland into their aluminum foil spacecraft. In the audience, Sammy's grandparents, Sheriff Buddy Rowland and his wife, Christy, watched the boy with unabashed pride. <laughs> Deputy Ollie Stevens hurries into the dimly lit room, finds the sheriff on an aisle seat, and whispers in his ear, 
The look on Buddy's face when he tells Christy he'll see her back at the house makes it clear a situation is urgent. As the two men leave the schoolhouse and head toward the county jeep that Ollie was driving, Ollie tells the sheriff how hikers found two bodies out by Lake Lawanda not 15 minutes ago. A man and a woman, young, dressed in night clothes, obviously taken by surprise. Ollie, in jogging shorts and sweats, had been watching bowling on TV when he got the call. He didn't take time to throw on a uniform. He knew that the sheriff would want to be informed right away. Sunday afternoons, most places are pretty lazy and laid back. Sunday afternoons in Linden, North Carolina, are about as lazy and laid back as a community can get without going extinct. The one main street is nearly empty. Country roads are even emptier. Birds and squirrels and deer trying to stay out of a hungry man's way are about all that stirs. The town's 3,208 citizens are out fishing or boating or milling around their own backyard enjoying the last of summer. Actually, it's mid-September, but the foliage hasn't yet figured that out. It's hanging tough until the first nip of frost. The bodies are gone now. Those people that Buddy had summoned from Ollie's car phone on the way to the murder site are at work backing evidence and taking official photos. The coroner's van is pulling away from the area designated by yellow tape as the crime scene. Long faces on everyone, concerned, troubled faces. Not that these folks are world illiterate, they aren't. They watch the news like everybody else. They're aware that violence is all around them. Wackos blasting New York and Europe and the Middle East, carjackers, gangs everywhere. But, and this is a crucial part, it had never happened before in Linden. Buddy, who should have retired years ago but refuses to give up the post, goes pale. He fights a violent physical reaction to what he's just seen, moves away from the others to think, to cope, to try to contain his sudden rage. If you walked up on the scene without knowing what to expect, probably the first thing you'd notice would be the shoes. Earth shoes. There aren't many of those to be found in Linden. Scuffed jeans hang loosely on the young man lying on his back beside the waters of a rushing creek. The camouflage fatigue shirt is a cast-off from an army surplus store. The fellow wearing that god-awful get-up is too young too innocent appearing for such wretched anguish. He lies with his eyes squeezed shut against some ghastly image, scrubs his face hard with his hands, but he can't wash away the mental picture. He squints into the sky with piercing blue eyes filled with an agony that suddenly takes form. The scream of a wild trapped animal roars from his throat and is lost to the rumble of the wind in the trees. Thank you.
The word on everyone's tongue now is who. They begin to look at one another suspiciously. Friends, relatives, past lovers and ex-spouses, teachers, shopkeepers, the kid on the corner, everybody is a suspect. Looks a lot like what happened over in Charlotte a while back, Ollie observes while he and the sheriff follow up on the phone, hoping to find a lead. Buddy lifts a brow, his way of saying, how's that? Ollie says, man and woman out camping, stabbed and killed, just like... Buddy finishes the sentence for him. Just like these, he says, before acknowledging County Coroner Chuck Allen on the other end of the line. Allen can only confirm what's already known. Both parties had been stabbed repeatedly and viciously. A hunting knife was no doubt used to do the dirty work. Rex Mason, editor of the weekly Linden Review and Buddy's Fishing Pal, creates headlines about the whole affair. But nobody outside the village pays much attention. Why should they? They've got their own troubles. Christy tells Buddy that he's taking the tragedy too personally, as if finding who killed 23-year-old Sarah Schroeder and her 25-year-old fiancé, Jason Blackwell, is Buddy's sole responsibility. The sheriff goes into Raleigh to meet with both sets of parents, learns the kids had gotten engaged the Sunday before and planned to be married at Christmas. She was a lab technician, he was a computer programmer. Two years out of college, they had paid a visit to the young man's elderly aunt at her Linden home. They planned to get in one last night of camping before returning to the city, and it was obvious they were city people. The area where they had chosen to pitch their tent and build a fire was strictly off-limits. The summer had been too hot and too dry. Campfires were a definite no-no in these hills right now. Maybe they hadn't noticed the signs. Buddy agonizes over the other murdered couple, the ones in Charlotte, unknown to him until he phones authorities in that city to find out what they know about that earlier but similar crime. And there are similarities, he learns. But was it really the work of one killer? Did the maniac kill twice in Linden and maybe before that twice in Charlotte? Will he kill again? And if so, where will he strike next? Is little Sammy safe? Is Christy safe? The town has total confidence that Buddy will find the killer and bring him to justice. Nothing. Not one lead, one idea, one clue, one witness. So Buddy does what he hasn't thought to do since he was a kid. He begins to use tracking skills taught him by his Cherokee grandfather. No one's more fascinated by this new way of doing things than eight-year-old Sammy, who goes along with his granddad on weekends, back into the woods, to learn at his granddad's side what Buddy had learned at his grandfather's side. There's a backstory to the killer's life. Of course, there's always a backstory. 
Dylan Maddox, named for Bob Dylan, his mother's favorite singer, is known to friends as Rainbow. He paints them on canvases, t-shirts, cars, motorcycles, anything that'll hold still long enough for the swish of a brush. His mother was a teen rebel who ran away from home at 13, fell in love with a college radical of 14, and gave birth to Dylan at 15, and died of an overdose of something concocted in staggering proportions at 17. She left behind a legacy of music she'd created out of her own pretty blonde head, plus photos of a childlike teen holding a naked baby boy, her old guitar, plus a box of crystals, and two sand candles. After his young wife's death, Rainbow's dad went on to fight for the legalization of marijuana. Lost, uh, he was ahead of his time, but not by much. Lived in a house with five or six other fuzzy-haired radicals. Then, surprise, surprise, cleaned up his act and is, today, a prosperous Arizona landlord. He owns a couple of shopping malls and belongs to the country club. Over a period of ten years, off and on, Rainbow's made an effort to bond with his estranged father, but his parent was having none of it. Rainbow has given his mother's crystals, the guitar, and her music, and sent on his foggy way. To Rainbow's credit, he mends broken animals and sings to little hill country children. He also shoots dope into his veins and up his nose. He connects with the universe when he's high, or so he thinks. He cares desperately about the ozone and Africa's dying elephant population. He's aware that too many youngsters in the world are starving and that some of them are Pisces, like himself. He meditates and prays for them as he fondles a protective crystal and intones his personal mantra. After murdering the engaged couple, Rainbow found himself coming out of a cocaine stupor. He ran to his old friend Rupert, who owns a shanty near the top of a hill. He and his woman, Wynette, raise goats and kids of the human variety in equal number. Their roadside stand, down along the highway, offers for sale homemade dream catchers, wind chimes, and they craft from stones found in a nearby creek and which Rupert hones into interesting shapes and sizes. Tourists sometimes buy the stuff and sometimes don't. And mostly, they don't. The crystals range from tiny droplets to a 300-pound whopper they swear has on its surface features of the Madonna, Jesus' mother, not the singer. $1,200 is scribbled on its side in black marking pen. It's been there for three years. Rupert listens to his friend's terrible tale and is in full sympathy, as is Wynette, who has become Rainbow's surrogate mother, fiercely loyal and protective of Rainbow and their way of life. They understand what triggered Rainbow's rage. He had lost everything in the fire that ravaged over 50,000 square miles of Carolina mountains two years before. He lost all his meager belongings and even his best pal, the scrawniest coon dog in all the region. He also lost the cherished mementos that had been his mother's. Hound was the dog's name. He insisted on following Rainbow as he set out with his paints for a distant river. Rainbow had been meaning to capture on canvas the sun setting through the trees, and this afternoon, he decided, was the day to do it. Hound wasn't so good around easels and paint boxes. He tended to get overly excited when he sighted wildlife, 
He ruined many a potential masterpiece that way. So, Rainbow did what he almost never did. He chained Hound to the clothesline. And when the fire came racing over the hill, galloping like a runaway stallion toward the house, Hound had nowhere to run except to the end of the ten-foot chain. And that's where they found his charred remains, and Rainbow never forgave himself. But, so much for Rainbow's backstory. Let me tell you how it is that Rupert and Wynette understand Rainbow so well. The few people who live around the couple are drawn together out of common interests. In the 60s, 70s, even the 80s, they would have been called hippies. In this modern time of ours, they are called environmental wackos. Their friends belong to mostly nonviolent militia groups. They all, to the last man and to the last woman, hate everything that smacks of government or authority. It's their common bond, and they will defend to the death one another from these forces. The hours spent studying obscure footprints under falling leaves and atop hardening soil turns from days to weeks. Buddy is obsessed with finding the killer. Christy and Sammy see less and less of him as the trail leads him closer and closer to Rupert, Wynette, their 300-pound crystal, and Rainbow. Linden Review editor Rex Mason had practically forgotten his friend was a quarter Indian. Buddy's granddad had been gone for years now and hadn't mingled much with townspeople when he was alive. Mason decides to do a feature story on the sheriff's tracking techniques and Buddy's resolve to find the killer. He starts the human interest story with what most townspeople already knew, that Buddy and Christie's daughter and her husband had owned a family tavern in a nearby town and that both were shot and killed in a robbery gone bad. Sammy was barely a year old. The murderer was caught almost immediately, but that tragedy has a lot to do with why Buddy won't give up his post as sheriff. He wants to make sure that every bad guy is behind bars, and he wants to make damn sure that he's the one who puts them there. What Mason left out of his story is Christie's bitterness towards her husband. She never found it in her heart to forgive him for helping their daughter and son-in-law purchase the tavern. She never wanted them to be that far away, and certainly not to own a bar. If Buddy hadn't made it possible financially, they would not be dead. No, she would never forgive her husband. She was convinced that she was too old to leave, though she actually had left him emotionally the day they buried their girl. Maybe Christie's attitude, her anger, is what kept... Buddy at his post as sheriff. It has become his life, all he really had anymore. So long as the townspeople will have him, Buddy will be on the job. There is some comfort in that. It's Wynette who spots the news story in the London Review first. Rainbow panics, but Rupert calms him with a whiff of something, well, from the garden. Their 19-year-old cousin, Julie, has fallen hard for Rainbow. And now, with the story about Sheriff Rowland's single-minded pursuit, she's afraid for him. She shares her fears with those around her. And soon, the refrain is carried from hill to hill, how he is, quote, being tracked like an animal. Strumming her cheap little guitar, Julie composes his song called, He's a Man. 
The messages passionately repeated rippled along the North Carolina hills with a sense of urgency and anger. He's a man of flesh and blood and tender mercies, a man hunted like some wild thing. Oh God, is there no dignity? Does no one care for those who suffered so at the hands of life? When did he stop being a man? What do you see when he stands in The song doesn't identify Rainbow by name. The wall of protection around him is dense and growing more so. Other songs are written, and soon it seems the Carolina backwoods are filled with a musical plea. Did he stop being a man? Understand the man, they beg. He's God's child. Who are you to stand in judgment? He needs your love, not your condemnation. When did he stop being a man? What do you see when he stands in front of you? Hunted now, there's nowhere to flee. If you find him, what will you do? No matter what you say. No matter what you do. I'll scream it out all day. That he's a By this time, two of the songs have been heard, stolen, and recorded by major entertainers. The music even lands on the charts. Rainbow, still the unnamed underdog, is fast becoming a hero. The people of Linden are outraged that a killer is being romanticized, but no one is more outraged than Buddy. The sheriff and his family have become a target. Sammy is badly beaten at school by the son of a family of rural environmentalists. Several anti-government segments across the nation feel the sheriff has gone too far in trying to capture a man who needs forgiveness. Sure, they say, the mysterious stranger made a terrible mistake, but that's no reason to treat him like something less than human. Find out the whole story before you draw your weapon, they shout. How do you know he wasn't peacefully walking in the woods and was confronted by the man he had to shoot in self-defense? Just because you're the sheriff doesn't mean you can play God. Christy is purposely driven off the road on her way to her volunteer job at the hospital. A warning is hurled from the attacker as he streaks past in a heavy-duty pickup. Christy barely escapes with her life, and her resentment of Buddy grows. Protesters can be heard in the woods across the road from the rolling cabin, but no one has the courage to go in and confront them. No one but Buddy, and he has enough sense to leave them alone so long as they are peaceful. Their voices can be heard in the middle of the night, resonating across the hills. Worse yet, TV news anchor men and women, reporters from news magazine shows, writers from all over the world, book publishers, they swarm into Linden. They make camp in front of the sheriff's station and around his home. They dog him, shouting questions, offering enormous sums of money if he'll give a sleazy interview. They demand to know what he's learned thus far about the elusive anti-hero. Environmentalists are even harder hit. Internet movies are in development. Indie wannabe filmmakers are all over Linden. No matter that they don't know Rainbow's identity, 
It only adds to the mystique. The elusiveness is a plus, not a minus. Parents of the dead girl, Sarah, are hounded unmercifully. Is it true, they ask, that Sarah was part of a woman's rights movement favoring abortion? The inference being that if that's the case, maybe she deserved to die. Maybe it's karma at work, they infer. It all really hits the fan when it's learned that she actually had an abortion when she was raped four years back. When a quick-to-the-press book about the mystery of the unidentified killer, now the subject of top-selling music videos, hits the marketplace, it shoots straight to number one, prompting requests from every talk show in the country. Requests to Buddy, Christy, Sarah, and the murdered man's friends and relatives, even the Back Hills people. It's relentless. And to make matters worse, if that's possible, serious-minded social analysts are given an enormous amount of airtime delving into the why of the public thirst for more information about a hunted mystery man. Winter slams into the mountain town. Spring flourishes, and finally, finally, all the tracking, the obsession, the relentless, sleepless days and weeks and months smash to a halt for Buddy. He faces Rainbow, one on one. Of course, Buddy could just kill him. God, it would be easy, so easy. It had all become so personal. Buddy knows this subhuman creature. Footprints like portraits speak of the individual. There are, of course, the songs, the social media, the news stories, and the television movies to make Buddy feel as if they had met before eye to eye and shared a blinking of earth time together. Rainbow is caught off guard the day it happens, caught trapping dinner from the stream out behind a shack owned by two buddies. He's scrutinizing a string of fish when the sheriff simply walks up behind him. Time grinds to a stop as recognition spreads across their faces. It takes enormous will for Buddy not to squeeze the trigger of the police pistol in his hand. Every nerve screams to blast the ragged youth in front of him to kingdom come. There are those who might say, had anyone been there to witness the scene, the young man would have welcomed it. Fatigue is etched deeply into his face that has only been on the planet less than 30 years. Buddy knows that death is not the answer for either of them. Sarah's parents deserve to see for themselves this slice of slime in worn jeans and a tattered shirt. Jason's parents need to know that justice is working for them, and Buddy needs to come down from seven months of pent-up rage. Come down slowly not with a sudden bang. The way the story is told in the press, on the night of the killings, Rainbow had gone into the woods to spend a peaceful evening communing with nature. Yes, he indulged in a little cocaine. He wasn't hurting anyone but himself, and that's his business, no one else's. When he happened upon the campfire in an area where it was plainly posted that no fires were allowed, he flashed on the Holocaust that had wiped out everything he loved, and he went berserk. The media can't get enough of Rainbow. Everybody has a new slant, 
a heart-rendering story about Hound, Rainbow's love for animals, the loss of his mother at a tender age, his estranged establishment father. Social media and the networks reason that if you think about it, Rainbow was actually enforcing the law when he attacked the couple who camped in a no-fire zone. In fact, Rainbow just may have saved Lyndon. TV appearance offers are made even though he's being held for murder and isn't available. No matter, TV producers and podcast hosts say he'll get off. No problem. Hung jury guaranteed. Case dismissed. Fan clubs blossom. Social media goes insane with followers and supporters. Mail sacks by the dozens are delivered to the jail where Rainbow is being held until his hearing. They contain hundreds of marriage proposals and letters from high-powered lawyers offering to take the case. Ah, the sweet scent of movie and book deals. After all, the real, the unforgivable villain, according to the press and the public, is the old sheriff, Buddy Rowland. The town, however, takes a sudden stand. Buddy has been their sheriff, their friend, their protector for decades, as was his father before him. Lyndon is firmly behind him as he puts together an airtight case he's determined will be tried justly, with a just result. Meanwhile, Rainbow is held without bail. By now, a well-known $4,000-a-suit lawyer has taken the case. Cameras follow him everywhere he goes, and he basks in the attention. Before you know it, his face is on every TV channel and on every social media outlet in the country. He's as famous as his client. Julie had remained close to Rainbow throughout the entire ordeal, ran with him, hid with him, loved him. Sometimes there was no place to stay but inside a cave where firelight and the sound of her sweet voice singing songs that Rainbow had written just for her were the only food and drink. Now, with Rainbow in jail, Julie sings one of those songs on a national TV morning show. Can you hear me? Can you see me? Can you feel me today? Will you talk with me? Dance with me? I'll protect you from the prey. I'll lead you all the way. I felt your love this day. It can't just slip away. No, I can't go back to where I used to be. Now that I've seen you, heard you, felt you today, I want to go with you, dance with you, follow you all the way. I felt your love this It gets immediate play on radio stations everywhere. The morning show clip is seen by millions on YouTube. Some say the song will even be nominated for a Grammy. Suddenly, shy, sad-faced Julie is a star of gigantic proportions. And now, irony of ironies, before the meaning of it all can be intelligently analyzed, Rainbow and Julie are out of favor with their own people.
It was all right when the fringe group's concerns were getting out to the world through song, but now some of them are being investigated by the IRS, and the attention is turning their lives into the very thing they so despise. Some of their friends and relatives have even accepted money, and with that money, they've bought themselves new cars and fancy houses. It's corrupted them, eroded their allegiance to all they had ever held sacred. In his cell... It's plain to see that Rainbow really is, as the song insisted, only a man, a frightened man at that. His instant fame had sent him on a high such as he'd never known before, and now the downside is as horrific as drug withdrawal. Everyone seems to suddenly be against him. Members of the press say he's one thing, his enemies say he's something else, and he doesn't know anymore. He just doesn't know who he is. Seeing his depression, Buddy comments to his wife, I pray to God he doesn't kill himself. He won't just be a hero anymore. He'll be a damn martyr. There's criticism of the special treatment afforded Rainbow as he waits to be transported to the county seat for his hearing. Little does the public know that Buddy is compelled to handle Rainbow with kid gloves to keep constant vigil over him because of the threat of suicide a threat implied, not stated. And there's something else, too. The sheriff begins to see Rainbow, not as a caricature depicted in the press, but as a person. Buddy goes from seething and rage to curiosity, to something entirely different, and then, at some level, the men begrudgingly, unwillingly connect. But yet it happens. Rainbow's found dead in his cell. It's possible, if one is determined enough, and Rainbow had had all he could take. He knew, too, the chances of getting out were becoming more and more remote. With his best friends turning on him, the disappointment, the loss, was unbearable. Rainbow was never an evil man. He hadn't killed the Charlotte couple, but he had murdered the couple outside Linden. Yet, He was no Charlie Manson. He was a tortured, lonely soul who never had and never would fit comfortably in his own skin. It might even make sense to repeat the words from a song of the 70s. This world was never meant for one as beautiful as you. For no matter how one felt about him, Rainbow's music was sweet and haunting and reflected a being too fragile, too twisted to be able to survive let alone thrive on planet Earth. Most people understood that they who had created this mythical hero had also destroyed him. They probably could not have verbalized it. But deep inside they knew, and it was okay, because they were through with him. Ratings were achieved, book sales enjoyed, millions of thumbs pointing upward on the computer screen assured friends among the misfits. Ah, yes, fat cats lick their furry paws after the kill. The summer storm outside was nothing compared to the storm of anguish that prevailed among the media and the public when Rainbow's death was reported. But human beings are unpredictable, and because of that, in the end, Only a handful of the most insensitive still felt that Buddy was responsible. 
The rest simply didn't care anymore. On the morning of Rainbow's funeral, national headlines screamed, Sports figure arrested on moral charge. So the insatiable feeding frenzy turns in its tracks and speeds off in that direction. Like a swarm of locusts, the media, with the public following at a frantic pace blindly behind, again attack that which is the easiest to spot, the most prominent, the most conspicuous, the largest hero in sight, for the single purpose of devouring it. Rainbow, on his burial day, is almost as forgotten as he had been in life, at least the largest part of his life. Buddy and Christy leave the cemetery with a handful of others, including one or two photographers who take a quick shot of the pathetic event and hurry away so as not to miss one moment of assault on the sports figure, their next intended victim. Sammy runs on ahead of his grandparents. The week-long storm has dwindled to a fine mist. Buddy and Christy follow along behind. They can't help but notice a rainbow arching high above the trees. Christy reaches for her husband's hand as they continue along the country road toward home. This has been a Mojave Beach production presented by Saratoga Playhouse. Mojave Beach player Jeff Evans was your storyteller. Esther Luttrell wrote and directed. Iridesa Gentian composed and performed He's a Man and Feel the Love. Eddie Craig played the harmonica. Sound effects were provided by Zapsplat, Fesleyan Studios, and Sound Bible. Our score was the genius of Jason Shaw of Audionautics who composed Green Leaves, into Five, Acoustic Guitar, Country Q, and Bridges Guitar. Music from Pixabay brought you Lazy Desert Incidental Music 4 and the incredibly haunting Mio Balbino Cara, composed and performed by Ashcombe. Our friends at Fesleyan Studios provided the beautiful Stasis by Steve Oxen, who also wrote Champagne at Sunset. David Fesleyan composed and performed our Saratoga Playhouse theme, Tears of Joy. This is Patrick McGranahan, your producer and technical supervisor, sharing music editing credits with Esther. Hi, Patrick and Esther here. We hope you enjoyed the story, King of the Mountain, and thought you might like a little behind the scenes peek at the production. We're fortunate enough to be here with our storyteller, Jeff Evans. Jeff has had a huge history in the industry. So Jeff, thank you for being here with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, one thing, Esther, I noticed with this script, there were so many mood swings as I was reading through the script. What's the basis for this story? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm glad you, when you said I found so many, I thought you were gonna say typos. <laughs> I was relieved. Mood swings. <clears throat> a young man approached me 35 years ago or so, took me to a little coffee shop and told me the story. And I was uh, at that time just started to work for MGM. And he 
was curious to know if there would be any interest at the studio in this story. I can't remember how he came to know about it. But uh, in reality, as I recall, the young man killed several Girl Scouts on a campout. I just couldn't bear the thought of opening it with Girl Scouts. It was bad enough to open it with a honeymoon couple. But um, the way the media does seem to build things up so that they can tear them down has always been of interest to me. And to the best of my recollection after 35 years, it's, it's somewhere similar to the true story, but there are many levels. I think it goes to show us that we can't accept people as one dimensional, no matter how bad someone appears to be. There's always something that makes it right to them. Might not make it right to us even when we hear what makes it right to them. But I wanna thank you so much for, for just a voiceover to be able to get all of that inflection, to be able to carry across all of those moods that you were just, I was really blown away by it, Jeff. Thank well, you. I, I thank you very much. It's a, I always was an advocate when you do theater, you do a project, the more you like a story or the more you like what's happening within the script, uh, sometimes you do get a little involved, whether it be on stage or in a voiceover. And that's that's was the case with this script in particular. Well, thanks. Patrick has started acting and writing some of our uh, podcasts too. So I hope that um, when people hear our mysteries, that they will also stop to think we do have other things here. But there's something about a mystery because life itself is such a mystery and people's actions are such a mystery and the psychology of why people do what they do to me is fascinating. Patrick? It's Join all very us. mysterious. It's all very mysterious. <laughs> One of the biggest mysteries, by the way, from from uh, King of the Mountain that I appreciated, especially the way Jeff portrayed him, is is Buddy, the sheriff. Because I'm assuming Buddy was sort of an amalgam of people from the real story. Um, but Jeff, in a sense, had to play both sides, right? He had to play both characters. He had to play the good guys yes. and the bad guys. And somehow made us feel compassion for both sides and that's that's right. not just that's not just you know reading that is true storytelling that gives right. you such empathy with both characters and that's rare that's, that's that, really that's, rare. that's talent for you i have to tell you there was a point where uh we decided at mgm to blow the dust off of this because it'd been some time lying around uh and we looked at burt reynolds as buddy and we were going to see if Sally Field would forgive him long enough to come back and play this role. And we just never connected with them. And so I had no idea if they would do it. Okay, now hang, hang on. I've kind of lost track. Uh, is this based on a true story? There was an incident that did happen in the North Carolina, I think it was the North Carolina Hills, that was very similar 35, 40 years ago. So this, I would have to say, is inspired by that. But it wasn't because of the murder itself. It was because of the media. I remember thinking about O.J. Simpson and about other high-profile cases, how the, the media just feeds on it and feeds on it and feeds on it. And then when they're through with it, they run off and do something else. 
So, no, I would be lying if I said this is a reenactment of a true story, but it was inspired by it. Oh, yeah, yeah, I get it. It's uh, it's inspired by, based on a true story. I, I Personally, I think that true stories make the best stories. Well, I remember something a producer told me, Hal Wallace told me one time when I was trying to pitch a story to him and he was rebelling and I said, but it's true. And he said, Esther, there are millions of true stories out there and hardly a dang one would make a film. <laughs> <laughs> so just well, because I, it's true doesn't guarantee it's going to be interesting. Well, I realized the same thing, Patrick, when we were doing theater, our, our local theater set up what they called second stage. So we had six main stage uh, productions. That would be the typical sound of music kind of thing. And then on second stage, four times a year, uh, individuals could bring scripts forward and as long as the board approved them, uh, they could do them. And they weren't all originals. They were just stories and shows that aren't done enough. And my gosh, you, you hit it right on the, the nail on the head. There's more of those out there that need to be done yet than already have been done. Anyway, Jeff, what are you going to do from here? What's your next, uh, what's your next gig? Well, we have a, an episodic that we're going to be doing over here in uh, Orlando. Uh, myself and... Uh, two other gentlemen about my age, we, we end up auditioning against each other for every commercial and every independent film over here. And mostly it's for either uh, bladder control or Alzheimer's. But anyway. <laughs> and where will we see it? You know, that's funny about the way business is done now. You've got all these independent films. You've got all this other stuff going on. I did a feature a film as a sheriff a number of years ago called Dark Remains. It was a, a horror flick, but only in not a slasher film. But after it was all done, it took a couple of years to get it done, a full feature. It ended up uh, being direct to DVD and then to Netflix. Well, now when you get a short film or you get an episodic, you're not sure. There's so many more platforms now. Yeah. So you don't know which way to go with it. So you kind of make it and then search out where you want to go. Well, you do. And, you know, that's kind of the sad thing, too. It splinters your audience so that because there are so many outlets, you don't have any one crowd at any one huge place. It's the well, same with, with the money. You don't get yeah. as much money as you used to because you have more, more places for it to go. Well, you got so many streaming services now too. And yeah. I can't even watch the Academy Awards because I haven't seen half the movies because they're on pay for pay per view or some of these other streaming oh, services. Oh, listen, when Cary Grant died, that did it for me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Patrick? What do you think about all of this? Um, I think that movies sound fun, but I'd like to stick to podcasts for now. I do too. I really do think <laughs> that my my goal had been within two years, we would start making our own little movies. I think that would be a great deal of fun, but I have no desire for them to go to the big screen. I don't know quite what my desire is, but we'll figure that out because within two years, the whole thing would have changed so much. It doesn't matter what I would think today anyway. Well, it's fun right. because the what we just did, you know, King of the Mountain, you're going to have 100 people listening. Let's say you have 100, a core of 100 people listen to it. There's going to be 100 different versions in their minds about how all that looks like. So each individual is going to form their own mental picture of this story. And I think that's what make a, a podcast or even the old radio show so, so wonderful. Well, I do too, but while we're visualizing, could we visualize like a, a million? <laughs> well, I was trying to take a core sample. Just for here. fun? Yeah, I was just, the, the math for me is easier with 100. 
Uh, well, Patrick, you have anything you want to wind this up with? Just want to tell Jeff, thank you again for all his work on this, the, bringing the story to life as he did. And um, I just look forward to working with him more. Well, before we go, I do want to say something about a really terrific talent that we more or less just stumbled across. And her name is Iridessa Gentian. She actually wrote the song, He is a Man and Feel Your Love. She lives in Okinawa. Um, she's married to someone who's stationed there. And um, I saw her website and I was just really intrigued with her philosophy of life. And somehow we connected and she ended up writing these songs for us. And I think that she is absolutely incredible. And I hope the public warms to her. I hope the public warms to our podcasts. <laughs> I hope the public warms to us. So, Jeff, thank you again so much, honey, for all your hard work. Patrick, thank you, partner, for everything you're doing. And we will see everybody else next time. Bye-bye. I just want to take a moment to thank you for soaring with us on the wings of imagination as you listen to stories we're having so much fun creating for you. If you enjoy what you hear, take a moment to subscribe to Mojave Beach Productions on your favorite podcast app. And thanks a million. <laughs>